is Kane. This is Warren. Okay, can you hear me? Hello? Hello, this is Warren Washington with the Future Is Now podcast powered by Aurora IT and Anchor Radio. Today is February 23rd, 2018, and we are here live on the Future Is Now podcast. This is a part of a year-long series that we're doing with Anchor Radio where we discuss innovation, technology, business, and the modern landscape uh, of business. Um, we actually have a special guest feature today, uh, and before I jump into that, I want to make sure everybody gets uh, to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, Instagram, at Aurora Infotech. Again, that's on all social media platforms, at Aurora Infotech, and we are powered by Anchor Radio and Aurora IT, streaming on Apple Music, as well as all platforms that stream podcasts. Um, so like I said, I'm going to jump right into our special guest feature. Who do we have with us today? Good morning, Warren. My name is Kane McGladry. I'm the Director of Information Security Integral Partners. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I'm familiar with you and your work, and we've actually tried to connect on a few things uh, in the past. But to our new viewers and, and uh, maybe the people that are will be listening when this comes out, um, let's dive into what it is that you do and what it is what I'm really trying to get at is people don't understand cybersecurity. A lot of the questions I get are, okay, what is cybersecurity and how does that affect me? And, and why should I pay attention to that and care about it in my business? Right? Like I, I'm a business. I've been going around just fine. I'm, I'm making revenue. I have profits. I have employees. Um, I keep seeing all these trending things about cybersecurity, uh, but I don't really feel like that, that affects me or my business. And um, I, I really wanted to bring you on because I, I know that that's, you also hear, hear, hear this a lot in the industry and you actually have some really great answers for it. So Kane, if you, if you would. Thanks Warren. So um, there's, there's kind of a few things that I do. First of all, if your listeners are looking to find out more about what I do, um, you can find me on Twitter um, at, at Kane McGladry. Um, I hope you have that in the show notes. My name is not always the most intuitive thing to spell. Some people say I'm Kanye, but I don't sing. And neither does he. <laughs> I thought you were Kanye. Turns out. No, I thought your name was Kanye <laughs> at first as well. But no, when we disseminate it, all tags, your Twitter tag and your LinkedIn and all that stuff will be included in it. Sweet. And then, um, all right. yeah, I have some pretty cool video content that I'll send over to you as well if you'd like to share it. Oh, wonderful. So yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Kane McGladry, and I've also got my own blog, KaneMcGladry.com. If you want to see what I do at work, that's at uh, that's IPLLC.co. Um, and uh, there's a couple things that I do. As the Director of Information Security Services for Integral Partners, I'm responsible for identity and access management and privileged access management projects for our customers in the continental United States. Um, primarily, we serve the verticals of healthcare, manufacturing, um, retail, education, and of course, financial services. You can't be in cybersecurity consulting without being in financial services in some form. I'm also an, uh, I'm a spokesperson for the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, the IEEE, which gives me a lot of interesting exposure to topics where they've, uh, maybe the media wants to talk to an expert about cybersecurity. Uh, and so they, uh, I'm privileged that they call on me and they ask me to take questions from reporters like Reuters or Fast Company or USA Today. Um, and then I have a, a final project that I'm working on as well because I, I 
like to keep busy in my spare time. Um, spare, about, time. You know, spare time, spare time. <laughs> <laughs> turns out I don't sleep much is one of those things about me. Um, my third project that I'm working on with the CEO of Intelligence uh, actually is called Include Cybersecurity. And it's a project to increase the number of people coming into first or second cybersecurity careers. Uh, as we know, we've got a, a labor shortage upcoming by 2021 of between 1.8 and 5.5 million people uh, are going to be needed for cybersecurity jobs. And so the intent of the Include Cybersecurity Project is to really have more people consider cybersecurity roles uh, who come from non-traditional backgrounds. That might be a non-four-year degree background, might be somebody who uh, previously has thought, well, we're all uh, cybersecurity people, are all just cis white males in hoodies, beard optional. And we're trying to overcome that imagery that the media so frequently uses that uh, divides us and is exclusionary and, you know, really makes people think, oh, I don't want to work in cybersecurity. That's, that's, not me oh yeah that's that's not you know i i get that same thing right that like you said the white male beard with the hoodie on in front of the computer screen you know like they they think that that's the you know typical hacker or you know the Mm -hmm. typical uh you know ethical hacker or a person that works in the cybersecurity field and um actually that's how you and i linked up was on the um include uh cybersecurity uh security i think one of the first topics you did was diversity in cybersecurity which we'll touch on um here here in a moment but uh that was a great twitter chat uh i i know we were able to connect with a lot of people and uh hopefully we're we're able to start spinning the narrative a little bit differently because um we too have some of those same concerns i'm a veteran myself and um that was how i got into the tech space and started to work uh with cybersecurity. and as i grew i learned that you know, I started to employ people, I realized that, you you know, your typical four-year college degree or even some of your top industry-leading certifications doesn't necessarily mean you'll be successful in this space. So I started to really want to include, like you said, minorities, single mothers, um, people with art degrees or, you know, your non-technical degrees, and then veterans, um, people transitioning out of the military. I've really been able to, to show them that, hey, you know, get aligned with these products and services, get aligned with these certificates, and you'll really start to, you know, make a career for yourself uh, taking on cybersecurity projects. Um, Uh So so, so I'm really glad that you guys are doing those things. Those are big things that need to happen. Um, I think more companies, especially, you know, higher level positions uh, like yourself that work at these companies need to take on these projects and try to push that forward. Because like you said, that job, you know, that we hear a lot about um, that ties right into, well, the reason why there is going to be a skills gap, right, is because of what we offer and how we offer that to businesses. I believe by 2020, 2021, cybersecurity will be the backbone for business success, um, meaning that if you have a secured cybersecurity platform, a secured cybersecurity machine running your enterprise business, even your small business or medium-sized business, um, that's going to be able to give you longevity and then succeed in the business space. Uh, I tell people all the time, cybersecurity is not just about securing your enterprise, but it's about making your company work smarter, uh, work faster, work more efficiently using modern tools like automation and, you know, 
co-location data centers and, and and these things that we'll start to get into as the podcast rolls on today. Yeah, um, and I just want to pivot that point, though, Warren. I want you to think about it in a different way because it used to be that cybersecurity was solely about businesses. At this point, um, I think it's more important to think about public health and public safety because right now, uh, it, what's what the current threats that are happening today, not science fiction, not something in a novel, um, are actually public health risks. Let me give you a specific example. Um, it used to be that on the dark web, uh, that PHI, personal health information, PHI, sold for 10 or $15 a record. And so the third-party attackers five years ago were very motivated to steal PHI and exfiltrate that from healthcare organizations. I should mention I have a couple of healthcare clients, so this is near and dear to our collective hearts. Um, the fact is today, right now on the dark web, the uh, PHI, personal health information, is selling for um, about 50 cents or a dollar per record. Now, if it's been combined with other information, so you get a better portfolio on an individual, maybe it could go as high as a buck fifty. But PHI has really plummeted in value. So you go; it used to be ten or fifteen dollars a record. Now it's fifty cents to a dollar a record. The uh, third-party attackers are no longer finding value in exfiltrating PHI from healthcare organizations, even though the regulatory landscape of HIPAA says you will protect PHI. And as a healthcare consumer, I think that's important, actually. I, I enjoy the fact that they protect my personal health information. But that's not the threat these days. The threat these days, for a while there, like last year, we had the NHS UK, which was affected by Petya, not Petya, ransomware, which turned out to be a pretty effective way of preventing doctors from delivering critical care to their patients um, by putting the, the files under hostage and forcing the hospitals to either revert to backups, which is time consuming, or alternatively and, to- And this is, yeah, this is the company, I'm not to cut you off, but this was a huge, huge deal. I think people need to, to realize that a lot of people didn't have the proper procedures put into place to even prepare or even recover from an attack like this. Exactly. Um, in, Ve in Vegas, the same thing. It was a big deal, right? They're running old operating systems. And like you said, the the- I don't want to call them terrorists, but the hackers, you know, they stole the, the information. Either you pay the ransom, right? Or, or and if you don't, then we're going to seize, seize your data and right. uh, you're not going to be operational. That right. really devastated a lot of people last year. And that was last year. And here's the thing. We're in, in cybersecurity. So often we're chasing the threat. Um, we're not focusing on how we can proactively reduce risks by identifying those risks and then mitigating those risks. We're always chasing the last thing that happened. So last year, Petya not Petya, a bit of a crisis there happened around the globe. Um, Maersk will tell you that it was not a good experience for them. FedEx's balance sheet for Q4 will tell you it was not a good uh, outcome for them. But really what that affected was, was public health because doctors in the UK could not get information. Fast forward to today, and this is why I say this is a public health issue at this point. It's no longer about business continuity or business safety. Um, the current uh, attack that is so um, popular with, with third-party attackers is to deploy cryptocurrency mining software being a, a piece of malware that, that mines Bitcoin or mines Monero or Ethereum or any of the other ones. Ripple like or Ether or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or Kodak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. one coming up every day. Yeah. yeah. So it's mining that. Um, and what that does 
from an attacker's perspective, if you can get a large botnet of compromised computers that are mining cryptocurrency, you can make money without having to exfiltrate terabytes or petabytes of PHI. Well, in a healthcare organization, but also in, say, a defense organization or maybe even a manufacturing organization, but particularly healthcare and public safety, um, a cryptocurrency miner works by using system resources to mine that coin, Bitcoin, Litecoin, who cares, some type of, of uh, cryptocurrency, which causes a performance degradation. Now, the problem of that is that if the machine is working slowly, if the radio, radiology server that's storing the x-rays is running slowly, that's going to affect people down the line. So if a radiologist is taking a scan of somebody's broken leg who is in the ER and the ER doctor needs and nurse know, need to know what to do, they're going to get that information slower because of a cryptocurrency miner running inside of that healthcare organization's data center. If you extrapolate this out over a larger number of machines, that's going to affect potentially if it's, if it's got worm-like capabilities, which is what we're seeing, it affects actually all of the machines inside of the uh, healthcare organization's infrastructure, which in turn affects the quality of care that all of the patients are receiving. Uh, there's another case going on right now actually where and I can't talk about where it is, um, but where the police essentially can't use their CCTVs because they've, they're dealing with a crypto miner that is degrading performance on the machines that were decoding the CCTV, as well as they're dealing with a, a second attack, funny enough, from a ransomware that is attempting to encrypt all of their files across the CCTVs. So that's a very targeted attack, but that's a public safety issue. It's no longer about monetary damages. It's no longer about business continuity. If criminals are attacking something like a CCTV system, so that they're effectively blinding the police force so they cannot see what's going on, uh, it doesn't take much of an imagination to go, that's the sort of stuff that happens in the movies, right? Where the dude walks up and sprays the spray can over the, over the camera and then breaks over the bank vault, except for this can be done over a much wider city-wide area without having to use spray paint. And it's got a longer tail in terms of effect and it affects all of the people in that city rather than just that one isolated area. No, you're a hundred percent right, Kane. I, I kind of wanted to go into that a little bit. Like you said, this, that's our motto here. The future is now because these types of futuristic attacks are happening every day. And to speak to the police station and, and a little bit about the hospital. So for our, for our listeners, so this is what's going on. So your network um, is being penetrated by a, a third party uh, hack group, you know, overseas, usually, you know, in the Eastern Bloc. Um, and, you know, some Southeast Asian countries. Well, and they take is hard. They, attribution is hard. I'm not going to say where they're from, but um, the, the point is not of their location. The point is the results. I think that's the best part to focus on. OK, you're, you're, you're right. But I was I was trying to paint the picture that you're right. They're not running up on you with spray paint sitting in your parking lot, you know, right. doing it, doing it, you know, the old school war driving type techniques. <laughs> So, so when they take over your network, all your computers now belong to them. They're called botnets, and they use the CPU uh, power uh, to, like you said, mine cryptocurrency. So that latency, that latency, how, how you know latency, that you yeah. see on, yeah, that you see on your network, 
you know, you're a nurse, you log into your station, and everybody's complaining that it's slow. Well, the entire network is slow because they're using the computing power, the network power, the, you know, all the energy, the, the Wi-Fi, everything is being targeted, you know, to mine these cryptocurrencies. And, you know, they're sitting back and they're making money. Uh, meanwhile, you know, your organization, like you spoke to, public health issue is being degraded and, and it goes from there. Same with the police department. Uh, I think we, I understand. I know about the case that you're speaking to. I'm not going to you know, name names or anything. But what it really also affects is all those pending cases, all those trials, all that information that they use um, as evidence in trials will now be like like you spoke to will now be ransomed or stolen from these police departments. So that holds up the entire litigation process. And you start to see how this large you know, how this cybersecurity issue, like you said, becomes a public health issue, becomes a national security issue because it's, you know, multiple targeted attacks on various industries and infrastructures across the United States. And this is the battle that we are fighting, you know, day in and day out. You work with hospitals. You know, we also work with hospital groups, you know, energy companies. Um, like you said, the, the, the doctor's offices, Th these people, we see these problems and, and this is kind of, like I said, pivoting right back into that diversity and cybersecurity. You need, we need to bring on employees and people that can grasp this problem. And then every day is different, right? Every day in cybersecurity is different. So we need somebody that isn't necessarily looking for a structured type uh, of, you know, nine to five, clock in and clock out. No, every day is different. And you have to learn and adapt and work with emerging technologies in order to combat these issues that we, that we face in the industry. So for us... I would rather have a creative thinking person that is able to communicate and understand my end user's problem, right? To listen to what it is that's happening to them so we can better figure out, okay, these are the types of attacks that we're facing and this is how we, we, need, we need to solve this problem. Not only for the organization, but like you said, for the public safety and health of others. Um, everybody that goes to the hospital, we have a huge problem with uh, social security, uh, you know, senior citizens, people on social security that aren't necessarily connected to their PC or their phone every day and they don't know that their information has been sold on the dark web. Exactly. And for those listeners that don't know what the dark web is, the dark web is, uh, you know, underground internet, that onion sites that, you know, allow you to, to do and exchange uh, information via web traffic uh, in a way that uh, you can't be seen or it would be very difficult for somebody like me to find you. Um, yeah, and just to go back to something you said there, Warren, the, the, the challenge... I look at every day is um, at risk of quoting somebody smarter than me, which is not hard. Let's quote Einstein, who said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And that's what we've got today in modern cybersecurity. The, the risk is we keep chasing yesterday's threat. We keep bringing the same individuals we see we keep uh, attracting the same type of person with the same life skills the same background the same experiences growing up and we're expecting that they'll go to the top tier schools we're expecting they'll go work at the best companies and we're still somehow thinking and we're going to get a different result and that's demonstrably 
not true anymore. It, it, it can't be true because that case I mentioned of the healthcare organization and, and you mentioned the police organization, go back two years. There was a police um, force in Texas where their files were ransomed. And it, it was all of their files that were for pending litigation. It was court cases. It was video. It was uh, depositions from uh, participants, from suspects, from other individuals who had been interviewed. Uh, they were ransomed. This was two years ago, uh, being the police. Uh, they said, no, we're not paying the ransom. They were willing to give up seven years of data because they did not want to pay the ransom to the third-party threat actor which given the police, it's not an unreasonable position for them to take, even though that clearly causes a public safety issue. And yet today we've got the same problem happening. What's changed? We haven't changed the number of people who are coming into the cybersecurity industry. The products have certainly improved, but we haven't made a meaningful difference in terms of the way that we're talking about threats. We certainly haven't made a, a meaningful difference in the way that we've prevented threats. And that's, um, you know, that, that's kind of the, the challenge that I look at every day is how do we bring people who have got a different viewpoint into this industry? Uh, I was on a Twitter chat just on Wednesday uh, about um, diversity and cybersecurity, one of my good friends made the very good point that some of the, the best people she has worked with in cybersecurity come from uh, a philosophy background, or they come from a liberal arts major background. They don't come from your traditional, they learned data analytics background, or they learned um, cybersecurity, because there are cybersecurity degrees now, or they didn't come from an MBA background, but rather they're people who encapsulate lateral thinking and have got a, a, a different view on the problem space. And that's why I think that it's essential these days to really change the landscape of people coming into the cybersecurity industry. Because what we're doing right now, if it worked, you and I wouldn't be talking. We, we no, actually, yeah, I wouldn't, we I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah. We'll do something else for, for a job. <laughs> exactly, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have uh, Well, what do we do, right? Yeah, no, you're right, you're 100% right. And it's funny that you spoke to this because in 2008, I was recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence. I was actually studying history and political science at the University of Colorado in Boulder. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, they approached me and they, and they said they were running this pilot program where they were introducing 3,000 people to the information uh for information and center, uh, center of information dominance, where we would learn about cybersecurity, information warfare, cyber warfare, um, these things that we see now in the civilian landscape. You know, 2008, the military said, "Okay, this is what we see on a global, you know, scale, and this is what we need to do in order to, you know, prepare and protect ourselves on a national security, uh, defense level security." type of environment and they saw the same thing that you're saying now they reached out to colleges to universities to people that weren't necessarily studying computer science but that were studying you know topics subject matters that they knew would translate well into the information warfare cyber warfare landscape um i was fortunate enough to to be a part of this program they paid off my student debt and mm -hmm. you know i i was able to go back to school and they paid for my degree and, and those type of things which are great but that was in 2008 it's 10 years later it's 2018 and civilian companies are still playing catch up right oh we'll implement patches we'll buy the next software as a service tool and <laughs> right. and, and, and 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 they wonder why you know like you said q4 is, a, is rough last year for a lot of people um uh, and, and, you know, we look at the numbers, we look at the books and we see the problems that we have and we're like, hey, we recommended 
these types of uh, not just, you know, a product or a solution, but implementing an entire program, right? That's, that's to start to talk about defense and layers and all these things that you need to do. Um, and, and I, you know, it goes back to, uh, to why should they do these things? Why, why is it important to adapt? Why is it important to change? And like you said, Einstein said it better than I ever could say it. Um, and, and, And I also, to piggyback off of that, I like to talk about how this, you know, I, I don't like to hear we've always done this. This is the way we've always done it. So this is how we're going to do it. Well, you're going to fail, right? Like that plain and simple, you're going to fail because you're competing against a young person. Let's say this, for example, a 19 year old e-commerce business, that person understands the landscape because they grew up in it and they're going to adapt and use the landscape to their advantage. So when the numbers come out, right, don't be upset that you haven't positioned yourself to succeed when there's people that are working hard like Kane and, and I can name 10 companies off the top of my head that, that I recommend to people that I know will come in and, and not only fix the problem, but show the business, show the enterprise, show the hospital, show the police department, show the client what it is that they can do to help future proof their organization and not play this catch up game. And that, and it really all goes back into, like you said, bringing in people that think outside of the box, right? Not necessarily just bringing in the technicians that are really good on using a computer, you know, Uh and and that's that diversity in cybersecurity. That's how we're going to fill that, that job gap. Like you spoke to, um, Yeah, and I'm so glad that you got brought into that program in 2008, just thinking of some of the favorite people I've hired over the years. They were actually uh, in the Navy, they were in the Army, they were uh, in the SEALs, they were in the Air Force, and they too did not have that hands-on keyboard background where they were studying uh, computer security or information technology, but rather they came in from a different background, um, went through the military's programs, which at the time were very forward-thinking about the concept of information warfare. And you're right, in, in modern civilian organizations, we're not some organizations are bright spots, but a lot of them are still, as you say, playing catch-up. And I, I think that Part of that challenge, ultimately, is a, a dissonance between what the vendors are claiming and what the operational reality of a program is. Because a lot of, a lot of vendors will tell you, buy my product. Buy my product there, Mr. CISO, Mrs. CISO, uh, VP level person. Buy my product, install my product, and you won't have, we'll make all these problems go away. And... Wouldn't it be nice if that were true, that I could just buy some black box that I put in my data center if I still have a data center and it goes beep and when it stops going beep, I know I've got a problem. That would be great if I had that. And if you go to RSA, that's what they're still selling. Or if that's you, what they're yeah, still selling. If you go to where, buy your best of breed solution and you just install that and you just put it on, it'll be all fine. The underlying problem associated with that and Cisco's report came out uh, yesterday about that, about this tendency to buy best of breed products. The number of companies that have got this mentality of best of breed products, they're using 11 to 18 cybersecurity um, products in their data centers right now and in their cloud operations. That went up between 2016 and 2017. And every time a company goes out and buys one of these best of breed shiny boxes, how many of them actually think, oh, I need to train my staff. I need to send my staff 
out to learn how to use this product or worse yet, how do you aggregate all of that data to get a, a unified view of what's going on in your data center and your cloud operations and out in your new perimeterless enterprise, how do you figure out what's actually really happening? Now, it turns out there are vendors out there, some vendors, particularly in this space that will say, oh yeah, you buy our product and we'll integrate all that stuff. And we'll, tra right? and we'll, we'll train your staff. We'll give, you, we'll give you the online course, you know, they'll, we'll train your staff yeah. and we have price points for each, for each person you need to get trained. And then we have price points for each different program we need to sell you to get them trained and, and so forth and so on. And then, you know. Yeah. Is it every time we've got those integrations? My point is that by buying all of these new solutions, every time they have to be custom integrated with um, duct tape and bailing wire and code, that integration is really a, a, a potential um, weak spot as if the product wasn't built to work together. The other thing that actually came out in that Cisco report is we've got all these security alerts. Let's say we've got the people um, to, uh, we've got the system to aggregate all of these alerts from all of these best of vendor, best of breed solutions, the stuff that won all the awards, the Gartner leaders, right? In today's cybersecurity space, among organizations, I'm going to quote from Cisco here, among organizations that receive daily security alerts, an average of 44% of those alerts are not investigated. Average. Just think about and that. And those are known. Let's, let's dig, in, let's dig <laughs> into that, Kane. Let's dig into that. Because you're right. Okay. And it's only... And it gets worse. I, I'm not, yeah, get this. So 44% aren't investigated. That's because they don't have the people. Of those that are deemed, of the security alerts deemed legitimate, only 51% of alerts are actually remediated. So let's, let's think about this. We're four out of 10. We're not even, we don't have time to look at. And of those that are actually legitimate, um, just a little over half are actually fixed. And this is on a good day in modern cybersecurity. On a bad day, when an organization is actively under attack, that, those numbers of alerts that the defenders are able to look at and review goes down exponentially. You're 100% correct, Kane. 100% correct. And to touch on that, those are known threats, guys. That, that, that's what you're saying. These are, these are only the known... Th you're only scanning 50% of known threats. There's an entire mm -hmm. market... I would say about 98% of threats out there are unknown threats. So not only are you only scanning and looking for what's known, and then you're only correcting half, 40%, 50% if you're really good. And then, like you said, that's on a day you're not being attacked. So what happens on the day you're being attacked by these 98% of unknown threats, unknown vulnerabilities in the space? Uh, you have no idea. You think you're operating, you're just fine. And, you know, you're not going to find out about it until six months down the line. Um, when, when they actually go ahead. And what we're seeing really today, um, I want to pivot to Akamai, which released their state of the internet for Q4. Um, and they said that across their network, 43% of all attempted online account logins were malicious. So that means four out of 10 login attempts that they saw in Q4 in just a three month period was a malicious login attempt, a password, a credential stuffing or a password spraying attack where attackers are trying to guess 
account passwords. The reason that that's important, I want to go back now to Cisco and think about this. So um, 44% of alerts are just not investigated on a good day. When an organization is under active cyber attack, it is not a single source of attack. It's not going to just be like the DDoS, the distributed denial of service. Rather, what the attackers will do is they will attack on multiple layers, like that police department we spoke of earlier, where there will be a ransomware attack. There will be a malware crypto mining attack. There will be a distributed denial of service attack. There will be a spam attack. There will be a website defacement or some other, you know, there will be uh, maybe four, five, six different attacks going on concurrently. The defenders at this point can't remediate or view all of the alerts because they're coming in too quick. And this is where that password stuffing and, and, and um, sorry, credential stuffing or password spraying comes into play. When the organization is under attack, everyone's all hands on deck. They're trying to patch. They're trying to update their, their um, information security systems to identify the indicators of compromise. They're trying to update their malware scanners. They're trying to update their firewall rules. Uh, at that point, Mandeep is going to log in. Now, everybody knows Mandeep. He's one of the cybersecurity staff. Maybe he's a systems administrator. Mandeep's going to log into a system that he's never logged into before. But it's Mandeep, right? And he's cool. He just sits down the hall, right? What they yeah, I see, I, see, I see him every day. I hired yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, hired him guy. he's solid. He's a CISSP. What they don't know, what organizations under attack don't know is Mandeep might still be sitting there. But the third-party attacker was able to compromise his account. And so they are able to operate as Mandeep, as a systems administrator, as often a user with a high degree of privilege. And during that targeted attack period where there are multiple attacks, nobody's going to look at what Mandeep's account is doing. Nobody. They're going to just go, he must be doing his job. He's on that server. It's fine. Never mind the fact that he's copying files off the server. Probably okay. Must be taking a backup. We have bigger things to panic about. Like you said, Warren, only six months later, do they realize that was actually the attack? Because these days, going at, the thing I like to, companies to focus on really you can focus on the shiny zero days. You can focus on the, you know, the super attractive. They've got names. They've got logos like Meltdown and Spectre and Heartbleed and all of these super shiny ones. Those aren't the attacks that the attackers are making money with. They're making money on compromised administrator credentials that they use to exfiltrate large volumes of data, especially in manufacturing or in um, healthcare or in retail. And I say distribution. Are, yeah, yeah. And once they're able to compromise one of those highly privileged user accounts, they can do whatever they want. And that's not a that's not a cool attack. There's no zero day. There's no remote exploit. They just got lucky and guessed somebody's password or got them to divulge it. That's oh, it's not it's not lucky, Kane. It's, fight it's against funny. It, and you know it's funny. You said lucky. Um, it's crazy. Speak, let's go back to the the dark web or onion sites. I okay. um. I published an article, probably Aurora, the magazine published an article about two months ago where um, it was either NIST or it was uh, one of these higher level um, organizations did the research and uh, they put out the top 10 most used passwords found on, <laughs> on, the, on the dark web. And, and, and it was crazy to me because I believe 75% of the attackers or the, the large scale attacks, they 
fell in one of these top 10 most used passwords. And I mean, when the passwords are literally like Q-W-E-R-T-Y, right? One, two, three, four, password. It was crazy. I shared it. And, and I'm saying, okay, in 2018, you're the sys admin, right? I know you probably have 15, 20, maybe even 30 different logins. Why? There's tools. There's SSL tools. There's all kinds of tools I can recommend. But my point being is, you know better. Don't do Q-W-E-R-T-Y. Don't do one, two, three password and think that, oh, I'm high level. Um, you know, I log into multiple systems a day. You have to physically have control of my PC. Um, so it's okay <laughs> if I use a weak password, right? I don't need a 32, 32 character password. It's fine. You know, I don't need to adapt RFID or any of these cool technologies. No, it's cool. Nobody's going to steal my laptop. But Kane, you just explain clearly how they're able to do this, Right. And um, I defend against that. Again, this is that disconnect between what you'll see at the RSA show and other shows and what the vendors will sell you and what you actually need to do. The password is functionally no longer a meaningful security mechanism. We can impose a 32 character password on our end users. They have to change every 12 days. They're not going to be able to remember it. It's going to go on a yellow sticky underneath their keyboard so that they kind of comply with the clean desk policy. It'll be or they'll hit, they'll hit save on Google. They'll hit save on Google. Their email or they'll do something else with that. We can yeah. make the passwords for end users stupid hard. These days, it's still they'll just reuse that password everywhere. They'll make variances of it. The way to protect against password-based attacks uh, is to deploy a second layer of strong authentication. Um, my own recommendation is multi-factor authentication, which is one of those apps that's on your phone that either will send you a push notification that says, hey, I see you're, I see you're in Bellingham, okay? And I see that your phone is in Bellingham. I see that your laptop is in Bellingham, and yet you're logging in from uh, New York. Is that cool? Yes, no. Yeah. And I'll usually be like, yeah, no, actually, as a matter of fact, not in New York today. I'd know it if I were because um, I'd, <laughs> I'd be in ground as opposed to being at my desk. Um, so I like to see those get deployed because that simple security mechanism, multi-factor authentication is very easy to deploy these days, allows enterprises to have that confidence that even if someone's password, or well, even when someone's password is compromised, that their account account uh, still can't be used unless the third-party attacker can obtain that multi-factor security and intercept it. Um, and the reason I say I like those apps that are on phones like Google Authenticator or Microsoft's Authenticator, Centrify's Authenticator, Duo's Authenticator, all of those classic program and more, is that now somebody has to have access to my phone to as well as my password. They have to actually have signed into my phone and be me in order to do that. That's a much higher bar that only like APTs, the advanced persistent threats, are going to have the budget to go after rather than your average um, third-party attacker. That's one thing about it. The other thing I'll say is that I, um, I don't like seeing knowledge-based authentication, that being questions that websites will ask like, um, what was the name of your first elementary school? Or what's the name of your dog? Or what's your favorite song? Because all that stuff is available from this great dark website called Facebook. You might have yeah. heard of it. 
It's, it's just recently went public. It's a massive trove of personal identifiable information about users that you can uh, search to guess their knowledge-based authentication questions. What street did you grow up on? What was the name of your first wife, right? All the yeah. information available for free, turns out. It's a really good value uh, from Facebook. So that's actually not a good security stance. The other thing that I, I, I like to see when companies are deploying multi-factor authentication is a, uh, a avoidance of two-factor authentication, that being the SMS short codes. And the reason that I say the SMS short codes are challenging at best is that um, there are known problems with what's called the SS7 routing protocol. I know that sounds scary and technical, but ultimately it's a, a way that uh, telcos can send information between one another. It's been hacked. Third-party attackers, not no longer just nation-state APTs, but also third-party attackers now can actually intercept um, certain traffic like text messages on the wire before it reaches the handset. And making matters worse is that in the Google Play Store today and other app marketplaces today, there is malware that will intercept text messages sent to a device. Now, you don't download it thinking, hey, yeah, I want to have my, uh, my banking information intercepted by this app from a third-party attacker. That sounds great. No, what you do is you download a slot machine app or you download some video game app or some productivity virus scanner, ironically, app that says, yeah, we'll totally scan your phone for viruses. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm. And what it does instead is intercept your uh, text messages because all of these apps usually require a high degree of privileges that they'll ask the end user. Can I scan your files? Well, it's a virus scanner. Sure, sounds legit. Can I have access to your text message history? Yeah, sure, sounds legit. Um, and that's where that that two-factor authentication becomes risky because even if you're not under attack from a nation state or an APT, if the end user has malware on their handset, uh, that will allow the third-party attacker to intercept selectively those um, banking codes or those text message codes frequently used in banks, but also in enterprises, and again, impersonate the end user, which allows them to gain that corporate network access or that bank network access, um, which then they can get in, they can move laterally, you go into the whole kill chain, we've got a problem. Best avoided by simply having those um, multi-factor authentication applications at the handset. Uh, the other thing I'll say uh, before I, I've gotten up on my soapbox, I realize, um, that I like to see is the uh, authenticator apps that actually just require a user to click a button like approve or deny the login, as opposed to uh, trying to type a short code. The reason that I prefer to see those is that individuals who have different abilities than you or I might not be able to type an eight character or six character short code in the 20 seconds that it takes to time out. It might be very difficult for them to do that from a, a user experience be, um, perspective. And so it's easier for someone who has different abilities to be able to just click that approve button or that deny button on their multi-factor authenticator rather than having to try to copy and paste it or remember it between mm -hmm. their headset and their PC or their Mac. No, yeah. That, I wouldn't say going on a soapbox. I like the conscious stream of consciousness communication. I like everything you just said. I was going to touch on that point when you said, you know, you download the video game app, right? And, um, you know, all those terrible things happen. Well, I take it a little bit step further um, because when, when you go to your, your settings in your phone, you hit approve, you hit okay to everything, you don't realize that you're approving 
uh, now I have, you know, I have your audio, I have your picture. I'm so when you make a phone call or even when you don't make a phone call, I can take over your mic. I can take over your camera. I will listen to you all day. I will, I will follow everything you tweet, everything you type, every, every, every email you send off. I will collect that data and I will sit there and collect that data for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks before I decide to act on that data. Um, and, and to, to be honest, Kane, this is like, Everything you said was great, but I take it a little bit further and I teach people like, hey, you need to outsource cybersecurity. You need to bring on a team that can work with your internal team and develop and not not just develop, but monitor. You know, you need to have somebody that when these things happen to you, you can call and say, hey, do we have procedures put into place to fix this? And um, I think that's, you know, I wanted to touch that a little bit, the difference between a product, because like you said, a lot of... uh, a lot of people I do business with, I'm a CFO, I do business with other CFOs. It's all about what do I need to buy in order to be secure, right? They always say that, like, how much does this cost? What is the ROI, et cetera. So I kind of wanted to dig into that. What's the difference between, like you said, a black box product and actually working with a team like you guys and implementing a program? So I can speak to that. And I've been the head of of a uh, vendor's professional services organization. Uh, charged with actually making sure that the product gets deployed. And I've also been a consultant deploying products. And I've also been a director of consultancy where I am now. And so the difference of perspective, a vendor that has sold you a product with some amount of professional services will have a professional services statement of work that says, we will do these X things. And it's usually install the product, configure on X number of systems to teach you how to fish model, give your users some training, and then leave. And most people in purchasing will look at that and say, that seems reasonable. They're going to install it for us. They'll help us get a little bit of it installed. They'll send us on our way with some training. Sounds great. Um, And the challenge with that, it's too myopically focused on the individual product. If you're installing a new detection system or a new deception system or a new firewall system or a new cloud-based backup system, everything the vendor does is going to be focused on We are vendor X. We make product X. Oh, you have product Y. Sorry, we're not experts on product Y, but we'll talk to the experts on product Y if you can get them on the phone with us. The difference between that mentality and that of a consultancy that outsourced cybersecurity or at least a consultancy of cybersecurity is that a consulting approach is to say, well, what do you have, first of all? What, what existing stuff do you have? What are we actually integrating with here? That's kind of your, your base table stakes in consulting is what are we doing? What are we integrating? What's the larger framework that this fits in? But still, that's product focused. You're trying to figure out which of these widgets are you stuffing together? And that's like Lego or building blocks or um, Minecraft, if you take that approach, is we're going to build a uh, we're going to build a pickaxe in Minecraft, and we have the sim, and we have the antivirus, and we have the firewall, and these pieces all go here, and we'll integrate that. That's a basic consulting contract. The real evolved thinking in this is where does this actually fit in terms of our risks? Which risks is this mitigating? What risks do we have, and what assets are we trying to protect? And then 
how are we going to communicate this out to our end user community so that they do not see this as yet another regulatory driven panic driven purchase that is going to impede my ability to do my job because when you get to your end user community once you get out of the data center once you get out of the people who are actually doing the implementation the cybersecurity professionals and the IT professionals doing their hard jobs once you get out of that community and you go to Sandra and accounting or you go to uh, Mike who works in sales, right? Or you go talk to Sandeep who's in the engineering department. Once you work into that community, you have have to let them know it's coming. They need to understand the value of whatever cybersecurity program you've built rather than what product you're forcing on them. Because if you take the approach this is a product I'm installing on your PC because it's mandatory and you can like it or you can lump it, right? People these days, most, most, most organizational policies will uh, fire somebody for not doing their job. This is not unreasonable. If you're not doing your job, probably not going to last long, but they won't fire. They won't discipline people who work around security measures designed to keep the organization safe provided they're doing their job. So in a program mentality, people need to understand uh, that you need to connect with them emotionally, really, to have them understand why it's important that these products and these solutions are being deployed to their environment so that they take personal ownership of it. And when the system runs, maybe they have to type in a second password, or maybe they have to use a multi-factor authentication, or maybe they have to do a biometric scan in order to access the system, or maybe they can't just email files around anymore unencrypted, that instead of them going, well, this is an impediment to me doing my job. My job is going slower, and I'm going to get canned on account of that right? So I'm going to work around it. You get systems administrators who create backdoor accounts famously in this case who say, well, the security software is too slow. I'll just create my own root account, my own local administrator account, and I'll just use that. Nobody will know, right? Where they are intentionally mm -hmm. degrading security because they don't own it, because nobody came to them with that program mentality and said, this is important to the whole organization. This is important to you. This is important to me. Their leaders did not demonstrate it to them, the value of that, of whatever that program strategically will do for their organization. That's kind of that, that higher level of consulting um, where companies, you know, if they can hit that point, whether it takes internal resources or external resources, that's what's necessary. Because it's, it's uh, if you think of the loose lips sink ships campaign in the World War, in the Second World War. Um, that was a big a, motto for us in the Navy. Loose lips sink ships. <laughs> a few variants on it as well. Um, I like the Swedish one because it had a tiger and I, I like cats. Um, but the, the point is that that was a successful campaign of making people take personal ownership of this cultural change that otherwise they might not have had any, uh, any sense of propriety to it. They might not have thought, oh, this doesn't apply to me. They might have went, I can, I can tell this person this thing. I can share this file with this person. I can open this file, right, that's from an untrusted third party. It's necessary really to contextualize things at the end user level so they take ownership, not just, oh, we bought this new shiny product that, that this guy who I play golf with sold me and we're all going to use it now, right? Because that mm -hmm. the, 
always flame out or more often than not flame out, I should say. And, and, yeah. And it's not going to solve their, their problems. So to touch on that, Kane, like you said, implementing your program, designing a defense and layer solution that not, you know, not only solves your problems on the cybersecurity and on the business side of things, but solves your problems for the end user, right? Building a solution that is easy to use, easy to manage and doesn't slow down productivity to your end user. That's how you're really going to start to build, like you said, and have a solid cybersecurity foundation, right? If your network, if your end users, PCs or tablets or cell phones are using a program, a suite of programs that is easy to use, you know, easy to manage, it doesn't slow down their productivity, they're not going to do those, those workarounds. They're not, you know, they're not going to share and download files uh, that they're not supposed to. They're not going to skip out on the training. You know what I mean? They're, those things will not happen. So that, I'm glad you touched on that, Kane. That's the difference between just being sold a product and then working with a cybersecurity company like the ones that Kane represents or, 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 or others and implementing a program that is designed um, to not only protect you, but to help that productivity side of things as well for the end user. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's, it's possible for organizations to do this on their own, but it's getting harder. And I can say that. I recognize I probably have got a vested financial interest in this conversation at this point. But it is possible for organizations to successfully deploy cybersecurity programs on their own if they've done it before. You do not, well, if you're a sensible person, you do not want to say, oh, yeah, I've never done an identity and access management project, project before. Sounds like fun. Let's have a go. Let's buy this vendor's product and we'll just ignore their professional services. We'll ignore bringing in a systems integrator or a consultant. We'll just figure it out as we go. Right. Because that's mm -hmm. where you get those really negative outcomes, unless you are so fortunate to be lucky and to have very smart people who've got some related domain expertise. You don't want to go it alone on those anymore. Right. It's the same thing. If, you, if you're going to go walk up Mount Everest, which people do, you do not go that alone. You don't say, yeah, I'm just going to go do that on a Friday afternoon. It'll be fine. Right. And that's where cybersecurity is these days, is it is a challenge to do it right and to make sure that it's done safely and that you have a good outcome. And that's where there are guides along the way that can provide that that guidance or that consulting where they can say, here's what we know works. Here's what we know does not work. And here's how things fit in in the larger organizational context. This is not so much true of vendors. This is more true of consultancies and of outsourced uh, cybersecurity vendors, like a, a managed SOC, for example. Or yeah, MS, MSP, MSSSP, a SOC, those, those type things. Their experiences across multiple different types of customer, as well as within their same industry, and bring and identify best practices for solutions that work well, instead of saying, oh, you're a healthcare company, you should use template number four. Here's template number four, off you go, bye, right? That inability on the part of either uh, a vendor or worse yet, you know, individual organizations saying, well, here's what it says healthcare companies need. Let's just do all that stuff, right, is not going to take produce a desired outcome because it's not tailored to the individual organization's nuances. Um, despite the idea that we can all move into multi-tenant clouds where everything is going to be essentially the same for our businesses and our organizations, that's still regrettably not true. Organizations do things differently, often for competitive advantage, 
maybe not always for positive competitive advantage, but certainly for competitive differentiators. And any program that doesn't account for those variabilities is not going to be desired by the end users. It's going to be something that people work around, particularly if the people doing it have never done it before. That's the real risk here is saying, oh, I've got gumption and I've got a couple smart people and none of us have done this before, but it'll be fun. Let's go charge Mount Everest tomorrow with no training. And I'm with it. I'm with, thank you so much, Ken. I'm with going up Mount Everest, but I say the same thing. Hire a tour guide. Hire somebody that's been there before to work with your team. Every business is different. You said, you know, you touched on it. It's because, you know, that's their competitive advantage. You know, that's how they get revenue. That's how they've developed their back end of their organization to be that whatever brand it is, right? That's why they are who they are. So we don't want to come in and change who you are, right? We want to work with your team to help you climb that, that mountain like, like you spoke to. And I think that's very important. Like you said, if, even if you have a great, you have all the smart people working for you, right? You have literally, I bought all the smart people. They're all working for me. We're all here today. And, uh, you know, we're going to buy this product and we're going to implement this solution and we're going to put it in our own program. That is great. Reach out to a consultant, someone like Kane has said that has done it with multiple different platforms, multiple different types of organizations, right? I've worked with healthcare companies, defense companies, uh, you know, emerging markets out west, music industry, uh, distribution, Amazon e-stores. The, the list goes on because that's what we do, right, on a daily basis. This is the, the types of things that we do. And, and when you buy that vendor, when you go to that vendor and you buy that product, you buy that solution – you even buy their managed services and you, and you buy their add-on staff, what have you. That's great. Still hire a cybersecurity consultant because they know not just that vendor, but the 1,200 other vendors that have similar products and services, right? We are vendor neutral. We have to work with all these emerging technologies, all these emerging solutions, because just like the hacker that's figuring out how to uh, you know, um, attack them, we're figuring out how to better maintain them and how we can add value to our end users by using these products and services. So we won't, you know, a lot of people won't just recommend whatever the new shiny box is, right? They'll recommend what works for your particular business. And you won't get that full understanding if you go straight to the vendor, right? The vendor's going to say, just like Kane said, okay, your healthcare company product X or product four matches, you know, what we see on this piece of paper that looks similar to what you guys are doing, right? So boom, we'll sell you that. Whereas a consultant will come in, and he says, okay, cool, you're a healthcare company, you meet the requirements for product X or product four, but this is what we're going to need to do in order to actually have it work for you and for how you do your healthcare, right? How you do your business, because every business is different. Uh, I think our, our listeners know that, right? And, uh, and that might be one of the things why they're so deterring to, to start investing in cybersecurity, because they search the internet tirelessly, everything's different, everything has a different sales pitch, and they don't know if that fits their business model. And there are people like Kane and others that are out there trying to educate and, and push the narrative forward and say, hey, guys, we're here to help. We're here to take what you have and make it better and make it secure so you're not the next company that's on the news. Yeah, and I'd say really if, if there's one thing I can – out of anything else that your listeners have heard in this interview, the, the thing that's really important for them to do 
is to identify those assets they want to protect instead of focusing on the threats of the day, because there's always going to be new threats. Every day, the criminals are now making money. The third-party attackers are now turning a profit by producing new threats. That's their business. They make new threats. That's their job. They're doing it quite well, turns out. You can't focus all, only on the threats. You need to figure out what are you setting out to protect? What is the single most important asset, your crown jewels of your organization? And until you do that, don't engage the vendors. Because as Warren said, they're going to sell you the products that look like they might fit you. Instead, you need to identify what are you setting out to protect? What are your most important data? Where are those data? And then start figuring out how you'll mitigate risks and threats to that asset. No, that's perfect, Kane. I mean, that's perfect. Um, we're actually going to wrap up here on today's episode of the Future Is Now podcast. And like I said, this is a partnership we've done all year with Anchor Radio and Aurora IT, streaming on Apple Music and other streaming platforms. Um, Kane, I'm going to pass it over to you. If there's one thing that you can leave our, 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 our listeners with, and um, after, you know, after you say that, please make sure to, to, to drop your tags and everything um, so they know how to follow you. And then when this comes out, obviously, I'll make sure to include all your tags or social media channels. And, and like I said, send you over some great content. But please, what is one thing you can le- leave our listeners with um, that, that I feel like will help them uh, navigate through 2018? Um, get an inventory. It's super boring, right? It sounds dull, but get an inventory of what cybersecurity products you have, get an inventory of what data you are setting out to protect. And then once you've got those two, figure out where's your gap. Because until you know what you have, you don't know what you're protecting. And I, th- I find that that simple exercise is where a lot of organizations struggle because they either don't have an asset library of all of their data where it's stored, uh, what it is even, or they don't know what products they have that actually cover that. And before you go out and say, oh, well, we bought this product two years ago and it sucks, right? Figure out, mm-hmm. we train anybody on that product? Who still knows that product? What does that product actually do? What's the vendor up to these days? And focus on deriving value from your existing products before you go out to go buy the latest shiny thing. The bravest CISOs I have seen working in the field today do not say, we're going to go focus on this new zero day. They say, we're going to focus on base security, driving the most value out of what we currently have, defending what we currently have, because you want to make sure those gaps are covered. Until you've got that base coverage and you know where, where your gaps are, you can't set out to build a successful cybersecurity program. With that, um, I'll say thanks for having me on the show today, Warren. It's been fantastic. Uh, listeners who are interested, I've got a blog. It's at KaneMcGladry.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at KaneMcGladry. And also, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm starting to improve at LinkedIn. Again, my name's Kane McGladry. I'm pretty easy to find, actually. There's only one of me on Earth, so it's a very oh, yeah. easy search. <laughs> and he has a great profile picture. He has a great Twitter page, like LinkedIn, everything. Like, when you do look up Kane, I think um, that's why we had him on the show today um, very impressed with what they have and, and their offerings i thank you so much to uh today came for joining the future is now podcast powered by aurora it and anchor radio um we definitely will have you on again and um you know obviously reach out to me we'll collaborate uh thank you so much oh and um make sure to follow uh include cybersecurity on twitter Kane's doing some big things uh 
uh, almost weekly now. Would that include uh, uh, cybersecurity chat you got going on on Twitter? So that's hashtag include cybersecurity. Thank you so much, Warren. Have Thank a, you, Kane. Have a great day. You too. Thank you.